Hi FM presents South African politics and news with the South African Institute of Race Relations. The IRR show, independent, relevant and real, is hosted by Sarah Gon every Tuesday morning from 9 to 10, promoting life, liberty and property rights. Good morning everybody and welcome to the IRR show. I'm going to start off with um, good news, but there's still a question mark, and that is with the, re- the results of the voter registration weekend. Now, the Electoral Commission reports that over 78% of, the, of new registered voters are between the ages of 16 and 29. Now, as far as I know, you can't vote if you're 16, but be that as it may. Um opens one question, but it shows that it certainly shows that I think a range of efforts to get youngsters to register to vote has had some impact. Um, this uh, basically a total of four hundred and forty five thousand and eighty nine people registered who were in this age group now that 's very encouraging. However, um, most of the registrations, and that was the sort of stood at about 2.9 million, which looks impressive. However, um, the majority of voters were re-registering, and I suspect that partly because they actually wanted to make sure they were still on the voters' role in the right uh, in the district that they live, um, and nearly a million people re-registered in a different voting district, which I think is a sign, is a good sign because it means that people have moved and have to re-register because they can no longer vote in the area they originally did. Are actually making the effort to make sure that come the election they will have no no difficulty voting in their new district in their new environment. Um, the IC says that the voters roll now has 26.8 million voters, which is an increase of from 26,300,000 voters before the registration weekend. Now, I'm not sure I'm that impressed given the fact that between the last election and the number of registered voters that, in, that were on the polls after that, but before this next coming election is only 500,000, but the number of people who would be eligible to vote has to have increased. Um, the, the important point they make is that there is still, there are still 14 million people who are eligible to vote who are not registered. And that is really the constituency that the political party should be aiming at. And anyone who's trying to get people to register to vote should be aiming at that 14 million people. I mean, 14 million out of 58 million citizens is not insignificant. However, given the fact that we are a little bit sort of... There's been lots of talk and lots of adverts, etc., etc. I'm going to introduce my guest a little early today. And my guest is... A colleague who you've heard recently, I hadn't actually intended to call him on so soon, but you know, needs must as they, as they say. Um, and that is Chris Hutton of the Center for Risk Analysis. Chris, are you with me? Hi, Sarah, I'm here. Can you hear me? Yes, I can indeed. Sorry to uh, take the advantage, but uh, all the scheduling is slightly uh, um, gone off course. 
the reason I wanted to speak to you and, and as I said, got you back a little earlier than I anticipated doing was the news regarding South Africa's ports. Um, I think it, we're in a situation that Monty Python's Flying Circus couldn't have done better. Would you give us an idea of what it is that we're facing with our ports and offloading at our ports and that, and then transporting into the hinterland? Sure. So the main pressure points at the moment are at Durban and Cape Town um, ports, at those harbours. So at Durban, we've got over 71,000 containers on various cargo ships waiting to be unloaded, um, delays. Normally, the global average of unloading a cargo ship takes between three and four days. Mm-hmm. At Durban and Cape Town, it's now taking up to 20 days to unload one cargo ship. Mm-hmm. At Cape Town Harbour, um, a little bit less intense, but you've got a big breakdown of equipment. So at the start of last week, on average, Cape Town needs 28 cranes, around 28 to function well. At the start of last week, last week Monday, they had 18, and by the end of Monday, five had broken down. So hopefully some of these have now been worked on over the course of the last week. Um, a number of cranes, I think it's between five and seven, are on their way from Los Angeles. So that will, of course, take a while. So there are various plans in place, but it looks like... Yeah, it's, it, it's a bit glib of me to say this, but for those of you who ordered things from overseas for Christmas, et cetera, et cetera, that will take, uh, that those things might take a while. That's the <laughs> making light of the situation. The word, the, obviously the worst of the situation is the impact on the, the economy as a whole. Mm-hmm. Um, Chris, you spoke to us earlier, uh, no, not earlier, you spoke to me and my colleagues yesterday about, about this crisis. Um, and, most interesting is the position taken by the global shipping giant Maersk which, um, in bypassing Cape Town Harbour completely. What, what does Maersk have in mind? I mean, all of us have seen Maersk containers in, at some point in our lives. So Maersk and MSC, the Mediterranean shipping company, um, last week they announced, both of them, that they'll start imposing congestion charges for unloading containers and container ships at South African ports because things are taking so long. That adds the amount of fuel that the ships need. It delays orders. It impacts negatively on their customers. So from the 1st of December, those two companies respectively will be imposing congestion charges. And now add to that where uh, Maersk said last week that they will be bypassing Cape Town, heading to Mauritius, unloading there, and then they'll have a smaller feeder service going from Mauritius to Cape Town. So the goods will still come through. It's just that there's so much so much delays, lack of capacity, lack of cranes, lack of trucks and truck brackets at Cape Town Harbour, that Maersk is deciding it's a bit easier to unload the larger container ships at Mauritius and then feed into other ports uh, around South Africa, including Cape Town. And, of course, as has been happening over the past year or two, this will accelerate traffic going to Maputo and Valfus Bay in Namibia, uh, companies are realizing both importers and exporters. Maybe those are better avenues for them to import and move their goods. And that means in turn uh, more expenses in terms of moving things on road freight in South Africa, but also a loss for the fiscus. Um, mm-hmm. Some goods will not come through South African ports, but instead come into sub-Saharan Africa through other countries. Um, um, I, know, I know we've been looking at ports and port net and transnet for a while, but to the sort of untrained eye like mine, um, 
I, I'm not sure I quite understand why breakdowns could not be foreseen or not repaired more quickly. Is it a lack of equipment? Is it lack of skills? Um, are there less, are there fewer employees to do this work? Um, just there's no money. I mean, is it the, the typical South African story? I mean, the, just a, a combination of factors that just ensure that our economy goes further down the rabbit hole? Well, I think a, a combination of factors is an accurate way to describe it, but the, probably the biggest one that jumps out is the lack of maintenance and mm. the lack of planning. So if you realize, for example, that your railways aren't functioning as well, that you need more berths or trucks to come in, that you need more brackets, you source those early enough. Mm. You make sure that you see orders for goods coming in for the festive season, so you plan accordingly, for mm. example. Uh, when you don't do that, the equipment that you do have is under more strain, under more pressure. It adds to fragility thereof. And when you've got combined that with a lack of skilled personnel, not at every port, but you've seen a steady exodus of skilled people from the state-owned entities, when you combine it with that, you just don't have the people who can maintain the equipment, mm. um, who can identify the biggest issues when these need to be fixed, et cetera, et cetera. So it all sort of feeds into each other, I think, to bring about the worst-case scenario. Mm. Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. Chris, I assume from what you're saying that if our railways were working um, properly, working at all, that offloading containers and putting them on trains to get up into Gauteng, etc., would be the most effective, efficient, and probably cost-effective way of 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 moving goods from ports, uh, am, am, I, am I correct, or is, does it have to be trucks? Absolutely. After after using waterways, uh, rail is the second cheapest. Mm-hmm. So waterways, those countries with bigger and more more numerous waterways, like the United States, for example, it's just much easier to move your goods and cheaper on those canals, on the rivers, on that sort of thing. Same thing for Europe. So they're endowed with that geographically for South Africa that doesn't necessarily have that. You can still utilize the avenues where possible, but then also build your railway network, as was the case throughout much of the country's history, building a comprehensive and reliable railway network. But that, unfortunately, hasn't been maintained. Then when you move more road freight, more freight onto road transport, like trucks, for example, you expose the infrastructure, so the roads, firstly, that were not necessarily built to handle that much freight, those heavy trucks. If any one of the listeners have recently driven through the Free State, especially places like Harry Smith, uh, Bethlehem, you can see just the devastation that the, the road freight causes to those towns, to their roads. So you add that issue, uh, that adds costs for the municipalities in terms of upgrades. But then also when fuel prices increase, you've got that added cost onto businesses moving their goods by road freight. And then finally, security issues. So if you have only one route, for example, one or two routes as the N3 is connecting Gauteng to KZN, it's very easy for uh, nefarious actors, uh, those with vested interests, to disrupt Mm -hmm. those one or two avenues and then make sure that they benefit from that in the long run through uh, attacking trucks and all that kind of thing. Yes, I, I gather, I don't have it in front of me, but I gather there's a huge backup at, at uh, Richards Bay Coal Terminal. Um, and to the extent that, I mean, 
trucks are just lining the road for for kilometers which is providing a wonderful source of revenue for the uh, traffic department all sorts of finding is going on so you know if you lose on one uh, sector of growth in the area you we clearly make up on another uh, which is uh, uh, the south african way of doing things what uh, what really struck me from something you said was that there the, has been agreement of some months ago, agreement was reached about a Philippine ports company coming into, I think Durban in particular, to help improve things, run things properly, uh, or take over the running of aspects of the port. And by all accounts, it is, it, I, I can't recall, I think it's a, a public company, but it, it has credibility, um, it has a good reputation. Then you um, informed us yesterday that, however, Nothing will go into effect until April next year. Surely not. Yeah, so a lot of the paperwork has been processed and put through, uh, but the the latest updated deadline, despite you know, we're told from Minister Gordon, from President Ramaphosa, that they're serious about reform and things are moving, the latest update is that everything will only be finalized, you know, signed on the dotted line, as it were, uh, by April of 2024. So, of course, that means... Yet more uncertainty about whether things will improve or not. Obviously, just because an agreement is signed doesn't mean it, it is fixed overnight. Um, even that will take time. But for right now, I don't think the sort of expediency that is talked about is is implemented in terms of actual, practical, concrete action. Mm. And now we have the... Uh um, she, the minister in the presidency, yeah, the minister in the presidency, Juan Kumbuzo Nchaveni, um, who, uh, they say is not always the most eloquent on subjects, but during a post cabinet briefing, she launched a blistering attack, blistering, no less, on the private sector, claiming that it was engineering the collapse of President Soramaposa's administration. Um, she was re- basically responding to journalists' questions regarding the you know regarding the performance of the rand and 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 uh, it's things things such as that and um she said it did not come as a surprise to the government and claimed that it was part of the private sector's mission to under, un, undermine and collapse the state is this learned woman correct in her analysis i i don't think the ANC government needs any assistance in collapsing <laughs> the economy uh, in terms of the policies that they've implemented throughout the years, maintaining monopolies in electricity, transport, as we've talked about, pushing very hard with BE and affirmative action, increasing taxes on a middle class that has few prospects for growth, um, destroying public infrastructure where it negatively impacts the majority of of black, poor South Africans who can't afford private transport, who can't then move around because they can't use the railways. I mean, yeah, the list goes on and on and on. I don't think the government needs any help in in collapsing the economy in that regard. It's obviously a useful scapegoat um, and useful to point to that this is not to say that this sort of thing that I'm dismissing, that sort of RAND manipulation or that engagement Mm -hmm. by by banks or speculators or anything like that, but that doesn't mean that doesn't result in an average of one percent growth mm. over the last five years. It mm. doesn't result in a forty percent unemployment rate on the expanded definition, um, increasing long-term unemployment. Mm. So when people fall out of work, they're out of work for much longer. All of those things 
are caused by government ideology and government policy. Um, and la- last point, say what you will about other facets of government policy, but it also doesn't then um, lead to the increased risk premium that is placed on South Africa, given the government's stance on the Russian invasion of Ukraine and also the government's stance on the conflict between Israel and Hamas. Mm. Um, The government makes those choices, and that puts a question mark around whether international investors should look at investing in South Africa or not. Mm. Um, should, is it just an act of desperation to find sort of one cheek in the, chink in the private sector arsenal uh, that they don't actually understand that the only interest that, that the private sector can have in trains working and ports working and everyone working as they should do is that it's is good for the it could only be good for the economy, only be good for growth, only be good for the government in far, so far as 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 uh, getting a, a larger share of the of 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 taxation that that could be available from from growing the economy, or don't they get it? I mean, I'm I'm, I'm really wondering whether you know, thirty years in, the ANC cannot wrap its head round the business the the, the sort of a to Z of doing business. Well, it is, of course, important also to keep in mind their ideological requirements, which are not necessarily as strong as they were before, but I think are still of, of priority for them. So, for example, controlling the levers of the economy, um, running state and entities, being the provider of all things that people need. So welfare grants, health care, education, the more difficult you make it for the business environment, for the private sector to function, the more you force people into reliance on the government mm. and on government services. Even if those are, don't perform optimally, at least you're quote unquote providing for your people. So if you view government action and policies through the lens of the national democratic revolution, then they are succeeding. Mm. They are creating more dependence on the state. Um, they are lowering economic growth, private sector innovation, making it more difficult for the private sector to function. All of that sort of thing undermines the quote-unquote revolution. You know, mm. the, the ANC as the, the vanguard of the revolution, uh, wanting to transform society um, in the only way that they know how that the rest of us are not enlightened enough to know. <laughs> All of this leads inevitably to that sort of thing. So it's, I would see it more as a feature mm. uh, than a bug, the yeah. sort of Event, the consequences that we're seeing right now. Mm. I mean, I see that uh, the ANC has uh, attracted a little bit of criticism, shall we say, that one of its election posters uh, implies that it, the ANC, the mighty ANC, is the only entity uh, who cares enough to pay on, on an ongoing basis the SASA grant, the social grants that are keeping um, literally starvation from the door. Um, do you think this would be convincing? Do you think it would last? Might it be a contravention of our electoral laws? I mean, you know, the, the ANC is providing all this largesse as like a Father Christmas, but it's it's our money. One way or the other, the ANC is providing nothing. Your view? Yeah, that, that blurring between party and state, maybe the mask is really slipping now. So there were pretensions that... The party is separated from government, from the state, but through things like cater deployment, preferential procurement, through those policies, you see that the ANC sees itself and government as one and the same thing. Um, so that, that sort of 
posting about SASO grants and only the ANC can provide, will or can provide these shows you, I think, what their real thinking is. But it also indicates to maybe really a lack of imagination and ambition. If you think the best that South African citizens deserve is 350 rand a month, that that is a life of dignity and agency. That to me says a lot about your, not just your economic outlook and your policy outlook, but your moral outlook Mm. as well. No, I think that's absolutely right. Um, And I think there, I think we can pretty much uh, say that the uh, moral quotient being exercised by the ANC at the, uh, by now is um, probably pretty much hitting the same levels as our growth, which is pretty much nothing at all. Um, Chris, thank you very much for coming on. Um, and all I can say is more power to the private sector in trying to help us help get us out of this mess. Absolutely, and I think we're going to see that that it has happened and it will continue to accelerate. So there's a lot of in all this depressing discussion that <laughs> <laughs> um, we have to acknowledge reality. But there are a lot of opportunities here for mm. the private sector, for civil society to fill these gaps. The government doesn't have the money, it doesn't have the skills to continue as it wants to. It still wants to be this, you know, big man, that whole narrative, but it doesn't have the capacity. So I think this trend will accelerate um, over the short to medium term. Cool. Thank you, Chris. Um, well, I'm sure we'll have you back again sooner than we expected because something else extraordinary is bound to happen, and I don't mean that in the positive sense.